Hello, everybody. Welcome to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Got a lot of stuff to talk about today. We have an awesome interview with Pete Davis coming up. Um, I feel like when we started this podcast, we had this kind of stuff more in mind. It wasn't necessarily completely political. You and I already do political stuff, so we yeah. wanted a little bit of a change from that. Um, and the idea was to talk about other things that we find interesting. And, you know, there's nothing more interesting than life philosophy. How are you choosing to live? What are the things that matter to you? You know, and um, which is also deeply political. Like, it is, that question yes. is deeply political. But it's ultimately. also more individual and psychological, more so in my opinion, than political. You know, when I think of political, I think of actual policy being implemented. When I think of this, I think of like it's a personal choice of how you live your life and what psychologically appeals to you. And this guy's argument is it listen, it's not good that you have a zillion choices, that you have all these things online that you could, you know, buy on a whim that we have, he says we get stuck in infinite browsing mode, which is yeah. this idea that like you turn on Netflix and you can't stop looking through the pages and you can't ever fucking pick something right. and then be satisfied with the fucking pick. <laughs> it's like and, an experience I'm sure we've all had. And extrapolate that to the rest of your life. That's his argument is like, that's actually not a good thing. Pick something, fucking commit to it. And even if the commitment is hard, it pays dividends in the long run. Yeah, and he takes pains to not make it like some obnoxious, just like it's all on you and bootstrapping your fault if you're unhappy, yeah. et cetera. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's a good lefty with sort of those larger societal trends and challenges in mind here. But um, but yeah, got, I got a lot out of the book reading it, and so I'm really excited to talk to him. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm really excited to talk about it too. Again, this is right up my alley because I... You know, I there was a time I cared equally about psychology as I did political science. So anytime mm. we touch on psychological topics, I'm here for it. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So a couple things we wanted to get into. This was just interesting. I hadn't seen this chart before that um, Bhaskar Sankara Jacobin shared on Twitter where he's got all of Europe and it maps out in which places the lowest percentage of young people live with their parents because it's what one of the slams on the millennial generation that's stuck also, in your parents right, basement still living in your Dicks, parents basement bitches. and of course the right wing thing is like and it's your fault yeah. right mm -hmm. um and he points out that in the scandinavian countries the percent of young people living with their parents is very very low four percent so, basically in each of those countries so in other words where they are more socialist the Kids are not living with the parents. They yeah. are they are thriving social democracies, aka welfare states, aka they have a hybrid socialist capitalist system. They have more socialism in their system than we do here. You could argue here, you know, uh, we have a social safety net, we have Medicare, we have social security. They go way above and beyond in terms of what you get for your taxes if you're a citizen. Yeah. And there are positive fucking effects to that. Hello, the see, and I've always argued this, Crystal. Uh huh. The the whole point of social democracy is to try to actually make the economy a meritocracy because you're giving everybody a reasonable floor where you start at and then you say, okay, now it's on you. So in other words, it's a hundred yard dash where everybody's actually starting at the zero yard line, whereas in the United States of America, it could be a hundred yard dash and fucking, you know, some billionaire shitty kid starts at the 86 yard line and you start at the negative 127 yard line and it's like, okay, go. And if you fuck up, it's on you. It's good. It's not fair when it it's like that. It's the dumbest thing I've ever fucking heard. How are you going to blame a poor kid in Harlem, you know, who's born into abject poverty, never had a chance, and somehow it's that kid's fault that he didn't make it? 
and you know we're giving credit to Donald Trump for right. making it <laughs> when he was born. Yeah. His daddy gave him four hundred million fucking dollars. He bankrupted six different companies, and the whole idea is this guy's like, oh, he's a good businessman, a go-getter. He's fucking born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He's a prep kid bitch who never did anything good in his life, and he somehow tripped over his dick and became president of the United <laughs> States of America. No, seriously, it pisses me off. of everything. It blows up the entire idea that the United States is a meritocracy and capitalism is a meritocracy. Capitalism is when you have fucking companies and you have a boss, that's a that's a micro dictatorship. That's right. a tyrant at the top who tells everybody, you need to do this and you need to do this and you need to do this. How can we pretend at the same time that we're democracy lovers, but also where you spend most of your fucking time is a dictatorship? That's a great point. Great I make point. great points. Well, and here's here's the, the corollary. I looked it up because I remembered the stat from during um, the pandemic. And so now a majority of young adults in the U.S. live with their parents. Oh, my 52% God. 52% versus four percent in Scandinavia uh, and I just want to say like I actually mm -hmm. believe in I'm like sort of traditional in this regard I actually believe in intergenerational living I'm very close with my parents I live in the town where I live because my parents are there like all of this I'm not judging people who want to live with their parents there's nothing wrong with that but if you don't want that clearly the Scandinavian countries are doing something a lot better in order to enable people to live the lives that they want to live so do we know how old when they say all is, um, 52 percent of young people 18 to 29 year olds oh my god and so it's I, I do want to point out it's not exactly apples to apples because this metric is 18 to 29 year olds and the one that bosker shared was 25 to 34 year olds oh but that even more makes the case right yeah. doesn't it oh no it doesn't i'm sorry no no, no it doesn't yeah it, yeah. Doesn't. it doesn't no, okay 18 to 29 it's still majority, astounding but it's not apples to apples a majority of 18 to 29 year olds in america live with their parents so we would need to see 18 to 29 in scandinavia yeah. even if even if you fucking double it's that double number eight percent yeah. let's say it's eight percent let's say it's ten percent let's say it's twenty percent still you're right? not even halfway to fucking 52 percent right. right oh my god yeah <sighs> I mean, on that fact alone, you could say the system is a giant failure. And listen, I have criticisms of the generation I'm a part of for sure, but nothing gets me more pissed off than when older generations critique uh, millennials because y'all fucked everything up and handed it to us and acted like it was our fault. You fucked everything up. Endless war. How many fucking wars are we in right now? You can, if you ask somebody, they can't even give you an answer immediately. Right. It's how like, many places do we have many, troops in uh, right now? Uh, carry the seven. I, like Afghanistan, Iraq. We still have fucking Somalia. I remember when I when I learned they were like a U.S. Uh, soldier dies in Somalia. I was like, we're, why? We were, we're in there? fucking Somalia. Yeah. I missed the debate. Like, what the fuck happened? You know, we did drone war. So you got all these endless wars. You got a political system that is the most corrupt I've ever seen. Where they just, the Supreme Court, starting in the late 1970s, there were a number of decisions that came in where they said, money is free speech. So if you want to, if you're a billionaire and you want to buy a political party or a politician or whatever, by all means, that's your freedom of speech. And so ever since those decisions have been made, now you have two political parties that just represent corporate donors and billionaires. And... Everything is just has absolutely fallen apart. Everything is absolutely grotesque. And so I think that stuff has a lot to do with how we got here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, relevant to this, there's another story I want to get your reaction to. So there was some new polling that came out about how Democrats could position themselves to win in the midterms. And basically, there's 
flags, red flags being raised by um, Stanley Greenberg is considered sort of like one of the preeminent Democratic pollsters, especially with regards to working class voters. And he's making the case that from what he's seeing, the Republican base, just like back in 2010, the Republican base way more engaged, way more tuned into politics, way more like sort of upset about what's going on. Democratic base, these aren't his words, they're mine. Basically, Biden gets elected, they went back to brunch and they're much less engaged. And so this is a big warning sign for midterm elections. And what they're arguing here is there was some polling done by actually the National Republican Congressional Committee that's been making the rounds that found that, this won't be any surprise to you, three in four voters in battleground house districts agreed with several populist class conscious statements. Here are the statements. Number one, the power of a few elites and special interests rigs the system against regular people. And number two, government is run by the wealthy and big corporations that are only looking out for themselves and not for us. So again, 75% of voters in swing districts agreed with those particular sentiments, according to the National Republican Congressional Committee. So there's a number of things to say about this. I mean, the first thing I'd say is I'm not so sure the interpretation of the first thing, the elites rig the system, the interpretation on the right is the same as the one that we have. Agreed. Yeah, when we hear that, we think like corporations and billionaires bought the system, Wall Street runs the system, military industrial complex, so on and so forth. I think they're more thinking like Hollywood elites have culturally rigged the system. Power of a few elites and special interests is what they say. Yeah. See, I'd be curious to get more specific answers from those well, people. Also, it reminds me of the poll that um, came out about the way the right and the left feel about billionaires. Mm -hmm. And it was also like the right right wing voters, they didn't like certain specific billionaires right, right, right. more actually than left leaning voters. But when it came to like, the all right, so let's, let's tax them. They're like, no. You know, where is it like cucks, yeah. massive cucks, so, you little cuck like, bitches. You know, should there be billionaires? They're like, of course, even though we hate these people. Whereas the Democrats that they polled, they had uh, more mixed feelings. But they loved Bill Gates. Ugh. They were sort of they liked Bill. A Eat that Elon propaganda. <laughs> they liked Jeff Bezos. They were like more into the specific billionaires. But then you ask them about a wealth tax or specific policy issues, or even the idea of like whether billionaires should exist or not. They were more on the side of policy, big picture, structural ways. So so that's I mean, that's the challenge here is that you can get agreement on that just like sentiment of this shit is rigged. But then when it comes down to, OK, what do we specifically mean by that? Yeah. Who are we talking about? And what's the answer? Wild divergence. See, what happens with the Republicans is that the dominant narrative that Trump really made, like that was his main thing is like, you know, who's screwing you? The fucking immigrants. They're the ones who are screwing you. And so he took all this populist rage, a rage against a system that has been genuinely screwing people for so long, and he redirected the anger in the traditional scapegoat way to, like, where are the brown people? Let's blame them. Yeah, let's, so, let's turn working class people against each other. Yes, but the problem is the Democrats, because the Democrats also take a lot of money from fucking corporations, just like the Republicans, they haven't done the accurate counter-narrative of, like, the problem is the billionaires and the corporations. Right. They are the fucking problem. It's not the brown people. It's not the immigrants. It's not. They're in the same boat that you are. The problem is the corporations and the billionaires. I'm going to keep fucking saying that until it's the duh position in your mind and you know it. Well, I think 
that Marco Rubio op-ed that he did about when the union organizing effort was going on down in Bessemer, Alabama. And he comes out and gives this like tepidly supportive case for why he backs those union efforts. But it was nothing about worker power. It was not in favor. In fact, he went out of his way to say, like, I in general think contentious relationships between management workers is a bad thing. But he aimed his ire at like the woke HR department. So when the right leans into this messaging, it's not about any sort of structural change. It's just about railing against like woke cultural stuff. And so it, it's really ultimately content free because at the same time that Rubio saying things like that and McConnell's coming out and saying like CEOs should stay out of politics, but I don't mean corporate donations. It exposes how hollow the critique ultimately ends up being. But I think what that polling on billionaires reveals is that's actually what a lot of the Republican base are looking for. They're not actually looking for that more structural content. They're there for the culture war. Yes. But again, I feel like the problem is the Democrats don't even make no, the argument right. of like the corporate the corporations are the problem. The billionaires are the problem. They They're, you know, out in nowheresville making, you know, whatever their own pet issue is. And it changes Democrat by Democrat. But there is no overarching narrative that they can hammer home, hammer home, hammer right. home. And so then it's Sounds like the Republicans are more populist, but they're not fucking populist at all, not even a little bit. If you're not in favor of raising taxes on the wealthy, you're not in favor of the $15 minimum wage, you're not in favor of fill in the blank with whatever populist policy you want, you're not in favor of any of that, I don't want to fucking hear it about, like, I'm standing up to corporations by giving them everything they fucking want and wagging my finger and saying wokeness is bad eight times. Agreed. Uh, and the other point I wanted to make is... Yeah. Um, Where's the... the thing I wrote down? <laughs> Where's the thing I wrote down? Well, oh, I got it. Okay. Republicans are more fired up, so yeah. I think that they're right. Yeah. But also, there's fucking fewer of them. And so it doesn't fucking matter. Well, <laughs> I'm afraid that you're wrong on that one. Not that they're... Look at Trump versus Biden. No, they were no, more fired up for I'm... Trump, but he fucking lost yeah, to Biden, here... who's half dead. But here's the problem. Um... There are fewer of them, but they have a systemic advantage um, through gerrymandering that's True. only getting exacerbated. True. And so and the Senate is even more tilted in their direction True. because of just like the inherent nature of two senators per state and how that empowers um, rural areas over urban areas. And so, look, I think that to me, I see this as. I, I think it is a real warning sign. And yeah, Biden won by like the freaking skin of his teeth against a guy who was like the worst ever. <laughs> we just, we okay. just watched him kill thousands of Americans and we're like, it barely, barely snuck by. So um, in midterm elections, it matters a lot who's going to show up to the polls. And I've been wondering, turnout was really high in the Trump era when he was on the ballot. Turnout was extremely high, uh, you know, unusual, you know, at least in the American context in modern times. I've been wondering what it would look like with him out of the White House. And there's some troubling indicators that the Republican turnout isn't going to fall off the way that the Democratic turnout is going to. So, OK, so but there's a, a bunch of problems with this narrative. I mean, we just saw the poll. It's only like 50 something percent of Republicans who are like Trump. 50 something is not I mean. There are fewer Republicans to begin with. And then if you narrow that down more to the really fired up ones, and it's only a little over 50 percent for the Trump ones, you could be as, as loud and aggressive and angry and in people's faces as you want. But if at the end of the day there's not enough of you, it comes to dick. It comes to naught. So I guess my point is 
nobody knows what's going to happen yet. Yeah. Nobody knows what the fuck's going to sure. happen yet. And like, you know, because I've you go back and you look at some of the things people were saying before this last election. And it's just embarrassing how wrong a lot of people were. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking about all sorts of people, whether they're in the establishment or they're anti-establishment or whatever. So I guess my point is everybody needs to have a little bit of humility. We don't know what's going to happen. All I'll say is this. If Biden right before the midterms does like one really good thing then I think the Democrats will do fine. But if he doesn't, then I think they're in trouble. Because remember, what was that thing that we saw uh, that he needs to have around like a 60% approval rating in order to to defeat the traditional like slaughter in the midterms? Yes, so he would have to match the best ever Mm -hmm. in modern times um, performance for a party in Mm -hmm. power once they win the presidency in order just to hold on to the House. Right. If If he matches the second best performance, it's a bloodbath. Right. So now if he stays on the trajectory he's on, which is we got one or two reconciliation bills through and I did a bunch of executive orders in the first week and now I'm doing nothing. Right. If he stays on that track, then, yes, I think they're in trouble. But I also think, like I said, the fact that there's fewer Republicans, it doesn't matter that they're more fired up all that much. So I don't know if he does one good thing before the midterms, I think they'll do okay. But he has to actually do it. And that's a lot to ask because he doesn't even know where he is. I just am seeing some signs of not exactly 2010, but I mean, that's essentially what happened in 2010 is the Republicans were fired up and the Democrats felt like we got our guy in the White House. We got the House. We got the Senate mission accomplished in this context. It's we got Trump out. That's what we wanted to do. And so it's it's worrying to me. And I also would but say, you know, it's weird. Too. Like, right. Well, it's also weird that or who doesn't have a neither Republicans, side. Nobody yeah. has a message. No, of Democrats course. are Demo- like, we're going to run on January 6th. Yeah, I which mean, is that's the what dumbest thing I've into. ever fucking heard. Yeah. So I, you know, yeah, Republicans don't have a message. That What are Democrats running on either to make people fired up? Republicans have almost don't need a message because I, I kind of do. Well, no. Listen, it'd be better if they had a message for them. But when you're in, when you're out of power, your people are just more fired up to have that check on what's going on with the Democratic Congress. So that gives them an inherent strategic advantage. Everybody needs to have some fucking humility because in 2016, very few people saw Trump winning. And in 2020, very few people saw Biden winning. So I don't want to hear any pontificating from anybody about what's going We don't know what the fuck's going to happen until it fucking happens. Sure. We can try to read the tea leaves, but we're so far out from it right now that it's just it's useless at this point to try to read the tea leaves. Fair enough. All right. Should we bring in Pete? I think we should. Okay. So excited to talk to Pete Davis. He is um, a civic advocate. He's a co-founder of a really interesting group we're going to ask him about, too, called the Democracy Policy Network. And he is the author of the new book called Dedicated. Here's Pete. Pete Davis, welcome. We're so glad to have you. So glad to be here. Thanks for having me on. Um, Let's just start with what was the inspiration for this book? Where did it come from? Well, I wrote this book because as I was growing up, I kept getting these messages from older folks that said, basically, keep your options open. That was the moral message we were told as we were growing up. If you are choosing a job, choose a job that will help, uh, you know, preserve your options for future jobs. Don't get tied down with any person or place you love because there might be a better thing around the corner. And don't speak too much about what you believe in, especially online. Don't share your political views because it might close doors for you in the future. And yet, you know, as I was looking around, I, you know, first off, there's all these 
incredible problems we have to solve. We have to tackle climate change and racial injustice and fight for a deeper democracy. There are so many institutions that are corrupted that need reviving. There are so many communities that need to be weaved together. And none of that's going to happen from keeping our options open. The people that are created everything precious that we love today, advanced all the causes we care about, built the institutions and communities we care about, are all the people who ignored the message to keep your options open. They're the people who made commitments to particular things um, and embarked on long hauls for the love of those things. And so this book um, and the speech that inspired it were an intervention to say, you know, there's going to be a lot of messages out there to keep your options open, but we need you and you need you uh, to consider the alternative, which is... Uh, dedicating yourself to particular places and people, causes and communities, institutions and crafts. So, Pete, in some ways, I'm like the archetype of your ideal because I'm very temperamentally conservative. And what I mean by that is um, I like order. I like schedule. I like commitment. In fact, the idea of not having the commitment is scarier to me than having the commitment. So in some ways, I'm the manifestation of the archetype of your ideal. But I will say that in some ways in my life, it, it's definitely been a positive thing. You know, when I started Secular Talk, and one of the things that kept me in the game and made the show blow up is that I was, I was super consistent. I was just always pumping out content. And so that's just like a personality trait and a character trait that it's hard for somebody who doesn't have that to overcome me because I'm just showing up every single day. So on that alone, like I, I agree with your thesis, but then I think back to like before I had secular talk and I was selling cars and I distinctly remember thinking to myself, I'm resigned to doing this forever. And like the thought was, well, this is safe. I have this thing. I can make a paycheck doing this thing. My father was in the same field. And like, I just sort of resigned myself to it. So in some ways, the, the temperamental conservatism and the commitment, it was good in some aspects of my life. And then in other aspects of my life, it was absolutely abysmal and it probably added to me being depressed. So how do you respond to that? Yeah, you know, part of uh, the first chapter I have in the book right after the intro is about giving browsing its due. The uh, subtitle of the book is The Case for Commitment in an Age of Infinite Browsing. And in some ways, infinite browsing is the boogeyman, you know, the the feeling that you're not going to dive into anything. And it's important, you know, in that chapter I talk about the joys and pleasures of browsing. You know, it's important to have times in your life where you're very flexible and you, you know, in our parlance, you know, you have, you are chill about things and that allows you time to explore. You also, you know, in that spirit of exploration, it's important to, you know, the most important part of that is that spirit of exploration can help you find your authentic self and shed any inherited or involuntary or inert commitments that don't really speak to you. And finally, you know, in that flexibility and in that you know, search for authenticity, you can experience a lot of novelty. It's a whole lot of fun to just browse around. But the message of this book is that if we stick in that browsing spirit forever, um, you know, there's all this good. It can get you out of this job you might not have wanted to be in forever that you might have been stuck in inertia for. But if you then quit that and then don't kind of 
commit to anything else, if you're stuck in the hallway of life or stuck on the menu screen of life, that flexibility, all those pleasures can be haunted by pains. So that flexibility can curdle into choice paralysis, the feeling of jumping from thing to thing and thus not being able to be satisfied with anything. That novelty, uh, Eventually, you do all the hot new things, you do all the quick adventures, all the things worth taking, you know, Instagram pictures in front of, but you never get to experience the novel, the deepest types of novelties, which are the novelties of being five years into a project or the novelties of becoming an elder in a community or the novelties of celebrating a 10th anniversary or mastering a craft. And finally, that, you know, search for authenticity, the perfect thing that fits my individual self, it eventually can curdle, you know, you can risk curdling into what Emile Durkheim called anime, this kind of spiritual isolation, this feeling of having no community that satisfied you, and thus you have nothing to orient your life or give it meaning, not the like pain of losing a game, but the pain of there being no scoreboard because you never got together with anyone to be part of a game. Um, and so the book is not a dogmatic, never quit book. It's a book that says, you know, let's talk a little bit about the fears that are preventing you from jumping into long hauls. Let's talk a little bit about the pains you might face if you never overcome those fears. And Optimistically, let's talk about the gifts on the other side of those fears, which is purpose and community and depth and impact and joy, frankly. How do you know when to switch from infinite browsing mode and evaluating your options into commitment mode? Like, how do you know when you've found the thing that is the thing you should commit to? How do you distinguish between the car dealership time and the secular talk time? Yeah, you know, I, I have a section in the book about how commitment has its own momentum. And um, so the first part of, you know, a commitment journey is you have to make, you know, you have to discern. Um, and one thing I, I, I talk about a few different ways we can discern choices. So one is just the classic one we know about rational choice, you know, pro and con lists. And I actually talk about the invention of the pro and con list. Ben Franklin actually invented it in a letter in the 1700s. Um, <laughs> but a part that we don't appreciate in our like overly analytical society is there are other ways which are, you know, talking about the cultivation of values. And one of the ways we talk about cultivating values is a really practical way is to start collecting heroes. You know, read biographies, watch the biopics about people, watch the documentaries about people's lives. You know, reach out to that elder in your community or you know, out there in the country that intrigues you, write the email to Noam Chomsky or something. And mm -hmm. um and um and start once you collect heroes, the heroes that inspire you, that turn on a light inside of you, that, you know, spark the divine in your heart, um, the um, they are revealing to you what your values are. And you can start asking your hall of heroes in your head, you know, is this something you would want to do? Another way to discern is uh, uh, a thing I learned called Jesuit discernment uh, that the Jesuits, the order in the Catholic Church have, which is they say, instead of analyzing your options in front of you, you should analyze how you feel when those options become real. Hmm. Um, so you imagine yourself really taking this path, really moving to Philadelphia, really becoming a plumber, really joining up with this cause, and then you see if it turns something on in you. And that hints at what we really have to do to 
you know, make a commitment, which is you have to dive in first. You have to take something that you're not very sure about and kind of fake it till you make it pretending, okay, let's say an example like joining the DSA or something. Go to a few meetings and instead of being in analytical mode at the meeting, like, do I like this? Does this fit me? Be in, I'm going to just try this on for size mode or try on for size, you know, being friends with this a person or try on for size living in a place or try on for size, uh, uh, you know, joining an, up with a civic group, uh, re religious group, uh, different uh, professional group and seeing if it turns something on in you. And then if it does and you keep going deeper, it'll have its own momentum and take on a life of its own. So many of the long haul heroes I interviewed for the book, I interviewed about 50 for the book. They told me I dipped my toes in. I liked it. I tried again. And then I woke up three months later and I was like vice president of the group or I was finding myself doing it every day. And so you have to give it a shot to pull you in. Um, and that's one of the messages of the book. Yeah, I like a lot of the things you said there. When you said commitment creates its own momentum, that definitely rang true. That, uh, you know, when you start doing whatever the thing is that you really enjoy, when you know, you know, like, you're, you know, it's almost like there wasn't there's never a second thought. It's just like, this is the thing. And so you don't look back, you know? So that rang true. And when you're talking about like infinite options leading to paralysis, that also rang true in a more trivial sense to me because I ate at the Cheesecake Factory yesterday <laughs> and they had like, I, I love the restaurant. Example, and yeah, they have so many good things on the menu that I'm like, I can't fucking pick like what am i supposed to pick because this everything is good <laughs> and i almost would rather have like three options that are okay and pick from them than like a thousand options where i feel like there's no way i can narrow it down because i'm always going to be regretting you know whatever i get at the cheesecake factory maybe i could have had this other thing and maybe that thing would have been better um so <laughs> but my question is apart from all that uh <laughs> how important is community in somebody's life versus fulfillment as an individual or are those things even at odds i think they're totally connected so you know i talk about in the book the three fears of commitment and the three gifts at the other side of them so and uh, commit, uh, community and individual purpose are some of the gifts, which I'll get to. So the three fears that I think are standing in our way from these gifts are one is the fear of regret. We fear that if we commit to something, we're going to wake up 10 years later and wish we committed to something else. Another classic one is the fear of missing out. You fear that if I commit some of my future self, I can't be everything everywhere with everyone doing the hot new thing and a special one for people our age you know it's uh fear of association we fear that if we join up with something larger than ourselves it'll threaten our identity or our reputation or our perfect authentic individual self that we thought we were because nothing out there in the world is going to fit us perfectly and it's not just that it threatens our identity in our head it's just messy to work with other people anyone who's worked with other people knows that no other person is exactly like us, and thus it's difficult to build community with them. And Crystal you have says to pass I'm perfect. Through. I don't know what you're talking about. Crystal <laughs> says I've I'm never sure. made a yeah, mistake. Yeah. <laughs> Every special time flower, he's exempt from this conversation. I'm a Go snowflake. Ahead. That's right. <laughs> yes, no. Entering into a partnership for a show, I'm sure you've experienced it. You know, they say it's uh, from getting 200 people to getting two people aligned is a valley of discomfort before you have the comfort of community. But 
the reason I bring up these fears is those are stopping us from commitment. But on the other side, look at what's on the other side of each. If you get over the fear of regret and you pick a room off the hallway or pick a movie of life off the menu screen of life, suddenly, you know, you, you feel this pain of closing all these doors, but slowly another message starts growing inside of you, which is the power of purpose. You know, I'm the one who's become inextricably linked to this choice I've made, and it gives a lot of meaning to my life, individual purpose. On the other side of the fear of missing out, you worry about missing out on the latest party or the latest novelty because you are locked in on, you know, we're recording this on a, you know, you're locked in in a, um, in on the time you have to record things for your show every week, you know, and you can't do, be everything everywhere with everyone, but you get the sweetest novelties of all on the other side of long hauls. Like I mentioned, you know, celebrating your fifth anniversary, having a big audience, you know, becoming an expert in a craft. And then most importantly, when you overcome the fear of association, when you leave the security of isolation, there's a certain security in isolation. But when you leave it to start doing community building or institution building or joining together in a cause, you pass through a valley of uncertainty and discomfort when the community building and working out the kinks is happening. But you get to the other side and you have more security, more empowerment, more comfort. Um, more joy than you've ever experienced when you're in a tight community. And so that's what's waiting for you at the end of these commitments. And I specifically wanted this book not to be another rise and grind self-help book that's all about you individually. All of these commitments, I say, commitments to causes and places and projects and maintaining institutions and crafts and people, it's all about bringing you outside of yourselves and joining in relation in community with things larger than yourself. And out of that comes purpose and depth and community and, and eventually joy. Um, your book is targeted and obviously it was inspired by a commencement speech you gave at Harvard Law School. Um, so it's targeted mainly at a younger audience. And I think you're I think you make the case and I would buy into this case that um, younger millennials, especially and Gen Z are more engaged in this sort of like culture of infinite browsing. And I wonder what your analysis is of why that's the case. Is it out of a choice? Is it out of sort of like the cultural moment that we exist in? Is it out of necessity? Because these generations have been totally fucked over by the financial system time and time again, has less wealth, struggling to, you know, buy houses, housing prices skyrocketing, struggling to start paying, yeah. all that stuff. So how much of it is choice? How much is culture? How much is necessity? Yeah, I was very careful and very serious when writing this book about this not being one of these classic, you know, individualized, isolated, some might say, you know, in these audiences, neoliberal self-help books <laughs> that uh, that tell you it's all about your mindset. You have like this browsing mindset and you, I'm going to wag my finger at you to get into a commitment mindset. The first half of the book is all about, you know, speaking to you practically about your individual life and your own fears with commitment and browsing and the like. But the whole second half goes into what might cause this and a cultural and political and structural project. So, so um, you know, one part is, I think, kind of soft cultural. We have a lot of Hollywood stories about 
single liberatory moments because it's very easy to tell a story about one big brave moment where someone slays the dragon, where Billy Elliot says, I don't want to be a coal miner. I want to be a ballet dancer. You know, those are easy to tell Hollywood stories about. It's harder to tell Hollywood stories about I marched for 30 years, going to a lot of meetings, having a lot of different campaigns to uh, to achieve something or grow something or build something. You can't have a whole Hollywood movie be a montage. So part of it is culture that we have a lot of stories about, you know, singular moments and not enough about commitment. Um, but I think there's hard political and economic parts to the story, too, you know. I talk, I have a whole chapter on open options economics. So, you know, first off, just on an individual security level, it's very hard to sustain dedication. It's harder to sustain dedication when you're housing insecure or health insecure or job insecure. It's much easier to continue going to that meeting every week or continue building that idea or continue stewarding that institution or advancing that cause if other parts of your life are secure enough that you can have that consistency. And especially with regard to commitment to jobs, you know, if you're not in a worker co-op or have a strong union um, or have a local community enterprise where people actually get to know each other and care about each other, um, your job is often at the whim and that job can become your career is often at the whim of distant forces. So I talk about um, that aspect and also just, you know, in other parts of the structure of the economy, you know, when we have um, – when we have, you know, a culture of uber financialization where any given thing, uh, you know, any given firm can be thrown into a bag of mergers and acquisitions and rearranged when, you know, the power of money is creeping in on other institutions that you could be committed to, like journalism or the university or, uh, you know, school, other things that um, that often could have been like stable, mission-driven, stewarded institutions suddenly become a plaything of finance. That's a problem. And then I also talk about the educational aspects of this. I talk about how our education system often is imbalanced between education for advancement and education for attachment. So there's education for advancement, which is, you know, the point of education is to give you skills to keep your options open, your own personal empowerment journey. There's another sense of education, which is education for attachment, the type of education that helps you join with something bigger than yourself, that teaches you about a craft practice that you should have respect for, that teaches you about important causes that you um, inspire you to join up with, that teaches you about professions, not just careers, which are individualist, but professions which have missions. You know, journalism has a mission of speaking the truth. Law has a mission of um, equal, you know, in advancing equal justice, medicine as a mission of healing people. But when we talk to people, not as you are joining a mission that holds you responsible and accountable for helping the public in some way, but instead tells you all of this is to just give you private tools for you to advance your own self and your own vision, um, that, uh, that suddenly is hurting commitment as well. And this is all without talking about the technology aspects. There, it's easier than ever to see different lives, see different places you can be, have the fear of missing out, swipe through 10,000 people that you could date. Um, and that obviously is inundating you with options and um, leading to this choice paralysis that I talk about in the book. So again, I like I like a lot of what you have to say. Um, one thing that definitely rang true is I, I've noticed this in my life for sure that anybody who has 
meaning and purpose seems to be at peace. And anybody who hasn't really found their meaning or purpose seems to sort of be searching. And that's total. even, you know, even factoring in age, you know, I've seen young people who have meaning and purpose and they seem very at ease. And then I've seen older people who don't have meaning and purpose and they seem totally lost, even though they're 30 years, somebody's senior. So that's a, you know, an interesting thing I picked up on. And, um, you know, when, when I think about this, I think that I'm a hardliner that people need to have meaning and purpose, but I'm the opposite of a hardliner in terms of what it's about. It could be a family, it could be a hobby, it could be a profession. Just have something that you can give your all to and you could feel the rewards of that and being part of a community so you get the individual fulfillment and the community fulfillment as well. In a sense, it has to be like subjectively objective. Like you have to subjectively feel like the thing you picked is objectively correct for you, if that makes <laughs> sense. So I know I'm, I'm all over the place here, but anyway, um, I have my own ridiculous life philosophy that I came up with a long time ago that I've only mentioned a handful of times on my show. And um, I never like wrote anything about it because I fear almost exactly the thing you said earlier, that if I were to write something on it, it would just be viewed as like one of those dumb self-help books that's like shallow and pretending to be deep. But I named my life philosophy passionism. And the idea behind it is basically that, you know, I've certainly been told my whole life that you need to be really good at a lot of different things and need to be able, you need to be okay at everything in order to live. You have to be a balanced individual in order to get through day by day. And, you know, I found that I'm terrible at almost everything. <laughs> But I'm really good at one thing. And actually, that has gotten me by, and it's felt very fulfilling. So comment on that. Is my philosophy stupid? Go. <laughs> no, I think it's wonderful. You know, I, I love this part you said at the beginning about how, you know, this eventually leads to peace. Um, you know, I've experienced, you know, part of dedication is taking control of your time. So like death controls the length of our days. We don't know how long we're going to live. You know, we have a little bit of control, maybe being a little healthier, but who knows the world is random, but we control the depth of our days and the experience, you know, from the micro level of their day to day to the way they think about their meaning in the universe, the long haul heroes that I interviewed totally experienced this peace peace because when they take a cosmic bet on longer strands of time, they, you know, they layer on more and more, you know, if you're of the religious sense, you could say holiness. If you're of the kind of secular sense, you could say, you know, magic in your life. Um, they layer on, they experience deeper and deeper purpose, the deeper they go into their commitment, the closer they get to their community, the deeper they connect with the cause that they're part of, the more they feel part of an epic story of the institution that they're stewarding. Um, and, uh, you know, the more time they add to something, the more beautiful it becomes. And the deeper they go, the more of that specialness they find. That's that their depth and their commitment makes the ordinary extraordinary. Going to a boring meeting, if it's part of this story that they've been part of, feels layered with all the meaning of all the other meetings they've been to. And suddenly the, the meaning isn't 
boring anymore. You know, an example I give that's a kind of a goofy example is like you talk to a super baseball fan and you take them to a game and someone, you know, throws a pitch. And if you're not a baseball fan, you're like, oh, that was just a pitch. And, you know, the baseball fan next to you laughs to themselves and they go, oh, my gosh, he just threw a change up. And then the batter, it was kind of a joke because in the ALDS, you know, four years ago, he threw a change up to that same batter and he missed it. So it was like this reference that it's because he's gotten so deep into baseball. He suddenly sees this pitch as a kaleidoscope of meaning. And that's Mm. what all commitments are. You know, when we're deep, you know, I'm in political causes and I've been, you know, following the left side of the spectrum for a long time. A speech is not just a speech. You know, every single sentence in one of these speeches is layered with the meaning of all the expertise I've built up, all the moments in the history of this cause that have built up. What does it mean when this politician says something or this activist says something? So I totally resonate with you. The the line I put it near the end of the book on this is Mother Pollard, this major activist in the um, this kind of elder community member in the Montgomery bus boycott at the end of the bus boycott over a year of boycotting the buses um, in the 50s, she says, my feet is tired, but my soul is rested. Mm. And that's what so many of these long haul heroes feel. They're more exhausted than the rest of us, but their soul is rested. And Mm. um, and uh, I I, so that totally resonates. And the type, even if, you know, you know, there's a recent book that came out called Range that says, you know, there's a worthwhile to dabble in things. I, you know, there's that internet meme that goes around, you know, specialization is for insects. I want to be able to, you know, fix a car and plant a tree and whatever. And I think that's important too. But I, you know, this book is for the people that want to take the bet on um, that it's okay to go dive in and get rooted really obsessively into one thing. Yeah. Um, and don't let people be naysayers to that. Yeah, be a one-trick pony, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> That's what I am. <laughs> I mean, I take from it a, a, a sort of balance, right? You have to know when the thing is right to commit to, when it is that passion project that's going to bring meaning versus mm-hmm. like when it's the miserable situation that you actually should extricate yourself from as quickly as possible. You have an important concept in there um, that's what I've been thinking a lot about recently, which is, you know, we have won, and Lord knows there's a lot more work to do in this um, regard, but we've won a lot of important civil rights battles that give more and more people increasing liberation. But one of the things you argue is that the technical freedom of choice is only one part of the story. The other part is being able to make sort of a meaningful choice with that newfound or hard-won liberation. And so I do think, you know, we we go over the stats all the time. I just was looking recently at um, opioid death rates spiked again last year, largest numbers ever, suicide, these diseases of despair. I, I see all of that as a kind of crisis of meaning. And so to me, you're offering a, a lefty answer to that crisis, which flies in the face of a more retrograde answer, which is like, let's go back in time when women did this and men did this and everybody knew their place and that was safe and secure and people had meaning in their lives. Let's just go backwards and go back to that time. Just speak to some of those concepts, Pete. Yeah, you know, over the last century, we've had an explosion of options and part of it is these liberatory struggles. And I will, 
I will never ever say, you know, the, those liberatory struggles are definitely continuing. There are people that are hooked on to unjust, involuntary commitments that still need, you know, I want to, I, we need to fight to, you know, continue these liberation struggles. But there's other sides of what happened in the 20th century, like technology, um, which are, um, you know, you know, the, the theory in Silicon Valley is often we want to give people more and more and more and more choice, more and more and more and more options. Mark Zuckerberg literally in a um, letter to his child that he published, he said, I hope you can have a thousand more experiences or, you know, a thousand times more experiences as I did in my life. But, you know, this concept, what does it even mean? A thousand times more experiences <laughs> as as I did in my life that that th it's kind of this kind of crazy idea that like our whole life becomes TikTok of like, there will be more videos we'll cram into our head. And when he says experiences, he means literally like VR images and audio. It's not like an experience of connection or something. Um, and so we have this explosion of options. We've had, um, you know, there's this feeling of kind of liberated from inherited commitments. And now we get to choose where we come out of the locked room, we're in the hallway and we've learned the art of you know building technology that leads to more choice deconstructing why in certain institutions sh should be you know dissolved we've learned of many of these liberatory virtues but after you're in the hallway you know the thing that event the goal is not to sleep in the hallway live in the hallway the goal is not we've we're not forced to have movies and now we get to have a menu screen. The goal is not to live in the menu screen. The goal is to eventually pick a movie or eventually with your own authenticity through your own voluntary choice, dedicate yourself to something, pick a room off the hallway. And to that, even the liberation struggles that we care about need that dedication too, because this kind of consumer choice attitude is never going to advance the continued cause of fighting climate change or deepening democracy or achieving racial justice, because all of the people that led to that liberation were people who were dedicated and didn't say, I just want to wallow in my freedom. Well, um, and the, the other uh, thing, Pete, just to, to kind of piggyback on that, that struck me in your book, you had a great turn of phrase. It was like, you we're all sort of like cogs and consumers. Um, and interchangeable cogs and consumers. And it made me ask the question of whether, look, for, for capitalism, us being in infinite browsing mode is amazing. I mean, even if you just use that technical example of like of Netflix, like if we're just on there browsing and browsing and browsing indefinitely, that's an amazing thing and never, never settling, right? And always coming back. Maybe this one's going to be the one. Maybe the next one's going to be the one. And so do you think that that is the case, that capitalism sort of creates infinite browsing or incentivizes infinite browsing as a way to keep us unsatisfied consumers always looking for the next product or experience that's going to bring us that meaning that's been like sucked down of society and sucked down of our lives by that capitalist financialized system. Well, I think it's baked into the logic of the message, because if you need to kind of continue your revenue streams forever, you don't want to, you know, sell someone you one thing and them satisfied. to be satisfied for 30 years. You want them to constantly be coming back and feeling like they need to upgrade. You know, Apple has perfected it. You know, if you have an iPhone 6 and it's perfectly working, you're made to feel like you should have an iPhone 7, then an 8, then a 9, then a 10. Repeat that across so many firms. And the whole point of, you know, marketing is to induce, you know, it used to be, you know, it, it, there are times where it was just informing you of products that were out there, but then it made a 
a switch and got revved up to be in inducing feelings. You know, you have a disease, you need a medicine, you are ugly, you need makeup, you know, you, you, um, you're feeling empty, you need this thing. Um, and this leads to a feeling so many people my age feel, which is, you know, we feel sometimes the result of all this is like, there's been a flood that has washed away for good and for ill so many things that could have rooted us. So for ill, you know, the financialization and the marketization and the destroying of all these precious, you know, public common institutions, for good, the deconstruction of these, you know, institutions and meanings and communities that had too much injustice and hierarchy baked into them, that it's correct that they had to go. There was no way of saving them. But the result of all of it is we feel like we're in a desert. We feel like we exist after a flood, we're grabbing for specific types of meaning to, you know, get a quick hit of meaning. And that's the most dangerous type of meaning making. The, the healthy type of meaning making is organic, slow, over the long term, reforesting the desert. That's the message I want to give at this book is that we can, you know, we can pine for the past before the flood which I think is unjust and wrong that, you know, this world of maybe meaningful for some involuntary commitments, we can surf the waves of this, you know, of, of this, you know, lost time and just try to get as much experience as we can, or we can start planting or we can start saying, you know, the institutions are corrupted, but let's start regrowing some with healthier meanings. The communities were not good for some people, but let's start making some inclusive communities. Patriotism got perverted by warmongering, but let's start falling in love with places again and falling in love with the people in those places and build a healthier form of that. So many of these ideas were um, that were built or maintained were... Um, actually manipulative. We got screwed over by some people, but let's start building some better institutions and stewarding the parts that we love. And what is the single action? You know, the, it's a reforestation project. And what is the moment where that reforestation project begins? It's in the moment when you set out on a long haul. That's what the planting of the seed is. Um, it, that's what the planting you know, the planting of the seeds in those reforestation projects is the commitment. And I'm pulling up a poem that is like the heart of this whole book, um, which is a Wendell Berry poem, The Farmer Philosopher. He says, in the dark of the moon, in flying snow, in the dead of winter, war spreading, families dying, the world in danger, I walk the rocky hillside sowing clover. That's the message of the book. So many people feel like we're on the rocky hillside and we can throw up our hands and say nothing's ever going to change. We can be delusional and say, oh, you know, if I just if we just have the one giant march in the streets or if this one candidate was elected, it would fix everything, which eventually will curdle into throwing up our hands and being cynical because it won't work. That's one option we can choose with the rocky hillside. Some people can be nostalgic and say, oh, I remember when this hillside wasn't rocky and it used to be covered in clover. Um, that's another option. Or we could say, now's the time to sow. And, um, and the act of that sowing is overcoming our fears to dedicate ourselves to causes and places and ideas and institutions and crafts and most importantly, people uh, over the long haul. So... Um... I feel like we can't have the conversation about meaning without bringing up the elephant in the room, which dominated 
you know, notions of meaning for so long, which is religion. And like, it's interesting because I could see the argument being made from either side of this, the argument that, well, religion doesn't really provide meaning. It's the opiate of the masses, as Friedrich Nietzsche said. Um, or you could argue, and many people have, that no, it was like the scaffolding that kind of held society together. And, you know, I'm a deeply secular person. The name of my YouTube channel is Secular Talk. Um, so clearly I'm a non-believer. But um, is there a point there that, like, religion filled the role for meaning for a long time and it was sort of a glue that held society together and now with religion no longer being anywhere near as prominent in modern society, people are looking everywhere for meaning and coming up short? Not to say that religion was a sufficient answer, because it wasn't, but are people looking in all the wrong places now for meaning and that's where we get the infinite options and, you know, people can't stop filling their time with bullshit? One thing that's not talked about a lot, so religion, religious communities were, um, I, you know, it's above my pay grade and above the book's uh, uh, mission to kind of allocate, you know, should we be religious or not? Um, you know, it has some religious, you know, I interviewed long haul heroes that were atheists, but were totally and completely alive with meaning. And I also yeah. mm -hmm. interviewed other religious people and, you know, interviewed a priest and a, um, and a, and a, and a nun on, you know, their journey through their religious commitment. So it's all in there. Um, one thing I like pointing out is we hear about the decline of religion and the increase of secularization, and that's part of the story of declining and like the daily experience of meaning. But as has been shown by, you know, Bowling Alone by Robert Putnam or Diminished Democracy by Theta Scotchpole and a bunch of other um, folks who have written about this, all types of communities of meaning have been in decline over the last uh, decades. The amount of people, you know, part of this book's kind of like this hunky-dory mid-century spirit of, you know, you might get your most extreme version of you know, your most pungent version of existential meaning at a religious community, but you get kind of a microdose of that at a normal civic group, you know, like a, a normal bike activist group when they feel like they're fighting for a bike lane because their friend who died, there's a little bit of that, mm -hmm. you know, there's a dose of meaning in that. There's a dose of meaning in the PTA. There's a dose of meaning when Gabriela Grajeda in my book continues the Bolivian dance troupe to another uh, generation. There's a dose of meaning when Mickey Raphael, who I interviewed for this book, you know, plays harmonica for Willie Nelson and is stewarding, you know, the craft of harmonica into the new century. There's a dose of meaning when Irene Lee starts a locally sourced restaurant in Boston called May May. There's a dose of meaning when Evan Wolfson did his 32 year walk to fight for marriage equality. All of these are meaning making projects. And part of what I feel like was my journey of discovery on this book is the discovery that there is a meaning making aspect to all acts of commitment. You know, I, I talk about the word dedication as having two meanings. Um, uh, one meaning is to work at something for a long time. You know, she was dedicated to the project. That's something you would say, but it also means to make something holy. You know, they dedicated a memorial, they dedicated a church, they dedicated a synagogue. Um, and, uh, 
I don't think that's a coincidence. I think there is something, if you want to use religious terms, call it holy. If you want to use secular terms, just call it meaning and purpose, um, To that feels deeper, that feels more than the humdrum of ordinary life when you're making a commitment. And there's been a decline, not just in religious groups, but also in this, you know, secular civic meaning making groups. And as many kind of old heads on the left will talk about, you know, the meaning they felt in the 60s has been in decline, you know, the types mm. of cause work, you know, it's not like the old days where everyone threw themselves into it, you know, it's very different, you know, and so um, uh, I think there's, there's been a lot um, uh, to this beyond just secularism. So just to follow up on that real quick, though. So is the argument that micro meaning at the micro level, if you develop meaning, that's going to bring the purpose, the fulfillment, the joy, the peace? Or does there need to be sort of a macro level meaning that like everybody's on board with? You know what I mean? Like, does it have to be it does it have to be a common shared purpose mm. among a very large group of people to get that real fulfillment? Or can it really be just a micro like, hey, I like to play squash on the weekends with my buddies and makes me really happy and we have this thing and we do it every weekend or whatever. So that's, that's my question. Part of, you know, uh, I, I don't mean to get too, uh, you know, abstract highfalutin about this, but a, a very useful, um, uh, definition I found was someone described, you know, secularism it, and, and, and some might call it small s secularism, not just the decline of religion, but the kind of decline of meaning making. They said it was the transition from, you know, the orient, the constellations of meaning being outside of yourself to being inside of yourself. So, you know, instead of there being a set of institutions and cultural moments that, you know, I, I call them constellations of meaning, like, you know, every single incident of this is like a star in the sky. You know, the fact we use this phrase or the fact we have this flag or the fact we have this holiday or the fact we have this rule, it comes together into a constellation that guides the individuals that, you know, take seriously that constellation. Religions do that, but also, you know, the Kiwanis Club or the NAACP or subcultures like you hear punk rockers talking about what is the meaning of punk? You know, that's not punk or something. That's not hip hop or something. There's um, there's any type of culture making is a putting constellations out there that other people can share in being oriented by. And the progress, the process of that falling apart is the process where, you know, we lose the virtue, you know, we, many of those institutions that built those constellations start crumbling and falling apart or being deconstructed. And we as individuals stop feeling comfortable orienting ourselves to a constellation outside of ourselves. Some have called that like small s secularization. And um, so part of why I bring this up is to say, you know, you can have these personal commitments that give you private meaning, but the message of this book is actually to join up with others, even in like a craft. You can join up with a craft by learning it all on YouTube videos, but the message of this book was actually get you out there and join a craft practice. Join the others that are doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu and be part of the constellation of meaning of Brazilian jiu-jitsu or the constellation of meaning of the improv community in the town or the constellation of meaning of um, you know being part of the DSA instead of privately just having opinions you know and um, to yourself um, and. A story that might help with this is there's the story um, of Wendell Berry tells of this bucket 
it's a bucket on a post and um, uh, it's on his grandfather's farm and the bucket's been there. No one's touched it for like 10 years. Um, it just, someone forgot about it. They hung it on a nail on a post and over time feathers fell into the bucket and bugs climbed into the bucket and leaves fell into the bucket and, you know, creatures died in the bucket and then decomposed. And over time, what came inside of that bucket you look inside of it and it was rich earth. It was soil. Um, and that soil is a thing that, you know, can be used to create life. It's like the ground on which someone can flourish. And Wendell Berry tells the story of this bucket to say, that's exactly what culture is. Culture is when songs and memories and lessons and turns of phrase and rules of thumb and good wisdom fall into a place and slowly composts and becomes the earth in which someone can grow. But here's the thing. The only way that that works is if someone is there to be the bucket. And so we need people to be the stable buckets out of which culture is built um, and out of which we can find meaning in that culture. And so I, I really don't think this can be a private thing. I think it needs to be shared. I love how much you love Wendell Berry, first of all. Um, but second of all, you know, embedded in the book is it's really a philosophy of of life and how you want to spend your days. You made the comment that, you know, we don't have control over exactly how long we live, exactly the, the number of days that we get. But you do have control over the depth. So let me ask you on a personal level, like if your life ends, whether it's tomorrow or 70 years from now, what do you want to be able to look back and say in order to feel like I lived my days in a way that I'm proud of, that I feel good about, that I feel satisfied with? I left whatever mark I wanted to on the world and the community. What would you how would you think about that personally? Personally, yeah. Well, I'm very happy. You know, I had a major thing happen in my life, which is I got married while writing this book and while writing this book, mo uh, moved back to my hometown and have decided to kind of put roots down here and be part of this. So I, you know, the most important things are going to be being a good, you know, a good member of my family and husband and um, and friend and neighbor and part of this kind of local community that I'm part of. On a political level, I'm, you know, I'm setting out on this long journey to, you know, I, the, my project that I care about is deepening American democracy. You know, I'm really concerned about the weakness of American democracy, not in the kind of thin centrist sense of the term of, you know, there's, uh, you know, there's just kind of issues with voting and elections, but in the largest sense of the term, you know, people not feeling like we can co-create our shared world, our economic and political institutions being clo closed off to the participation of the many. And I, you know, my hope is over the next decades, I can churn away at that and do what Max Weber said, called the slow boring of hard boards um, at that cause of strength, you know, building policies that strengthen people um, to participate in our democracy and open up, um, you know, institutions of power to the participation of the many. And that's what I'm kind of putting, that's the door I'm choosing off of the hallway. And we need people to kind of line up into all the different doors of all the different causes and uh, community and uh, community building and institutional revival causes um, over time. You know, I tell the story, I love the point of looking back. I tell the story in the book of 
uh, the abolitionists celebrating. Uh, they held a party when the Emancipation Proclamation was passed in Boston. There were two major parties where all the abolitionists came. And I tell the story of going through the rooms and how joyful they felt um, on the day that the Emancipation Proclamation was signed by uh, Lincoln. Um, you know, old enemies were hugging. They were playing. You know, they got orchestras to play hymns. Frederick Douglass gave this barn burner speech. You know, people were throwing their bonnets in the air. But then as I go through the different people that were in the audience that day, I flash back and I say, you know, Harriet Beecher Stowe, 17 years ago, started writing Uncle Tom's Cabin and William Lloyd Garrison, 30 years before, started, you know, the newspaper, The Liberator. And Frederick Douglass started giving his speeches 20 years before. One of the reverends there that night, his father started an emancipation group and he inherited it and continued it after his father did 20 years. He did 20 years. And then they were able to celebrate. And that's the message to all young people when I think about the causes I'm working on and all the causes that your listeners and viewers might be working on is there is no reason to believe that these long hoped for triumphs are not awaiting us as well, but only if we commit now. And um, and all of these, uh, you know, the last day that, you know, the last uh, fossil fuel is taken out of the ground, the last, uh, you know, the day that we've deconstructed another part of um, racial injustice, the day when the majority of firms are cooperative firms instead of corporate firms, you know, all of these, the day when, you know, uh, uh, you know, the empire has been wildly rolled back. All of those days um, are awaiting us if we commit and if we are willing to put down 10, 20, 30, 40 years of our life to it, things change. Uh, but it takes a while. And that's the message of this book. It's not that nothing changes and it's not that it happens quickly, but things do change optimistically, but we have to be dedicated. An antidote to nihilism. Um, lastly, Pete, tell people a little more about the, Democ uh, the Democracy Policy Network and the work that you're up to there. Thank you for that. Um, I, I have to talk on the meta all the time about this uh, book, you know, commitments in general, but I'm always happy to talk about my own. Um, it's this group, it's called the Democracy Policy Network. We're an interstate uh, policy network in the sense that we are trying to raise up policies that deepen democracy at the state level. So we write policy kits about exciting ideas like public banks or prison voting or worker ownership or democracy vouchers or tenant unions or community land trusts or um, uh, social wealth funds uh, the like that are popping up in cities, across the, uh, cities and states across the country. We package them into digestible formats and we send them to state legislators and their staffers to help normalize these ideas among them so they can start raising them up around the states, spread to other states, and eventually spread upward to uh, federal policy as well, and all in the hopes of uh, kind of normalizing an agenda of deepening democracy in the widest sense of the term. Absolutely essential work. Um, the book is dedicated, The Case for Commitment in an Age of Infinite Browsing. And I, I would argue, I'm sorry, Crystal, just real quick. Yeah. That it's like a, if you want a left answer to the Jordan Peterson type stuff, mm. this is this is in that That's ballpark. A way, yeah, a which is, yeah, which is good. I mean, people have been asking for a long time for a left answer to Jordan Peterson stuff. So this is definitely in that ballpark. So highly recommend that everybody should check out the book. Thanks, Pete. It's great to have you. Thank you so much for having me on. Appreciate Our it. Our pleasure. So there's Pete Davis. Um, 
really interesting guy, really fascinating book. You know, like I said at the end there, I do think there's been this giant hole in the marketplace of like like a left answer to Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson got this colossal following, and he got that following by basically playing the role of dad for a generation that didn't really have dads who were, you know, who didn't teach the right lessons, give a roadmap to success, give a way of being, explain the whys behind the way of being. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so I think that that's a thing that's desperately needed. And at times I thought, like, maybe I should dabble in that field, but it's just not my beat. I just, like, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm too goofy, silly, too much like the kid and not the dad. I'm more politically focused. And uh, like I said, when I mentioned my silly life philosophy, there's always the fear of, like, this is just going to be viewed as that stupid self-help shit. And you know what? That'd be a fair criticism. It kind of is that stupid self-help shit. It's just the (laughs) shit that I happen to like and I happen to think is correct. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I don't have the grandiosity enough to pull off a Jordan Peterson thing where it's like, I'm a serious psychologist who's telling you serious things all along. I'd be making fart jokes all along. So, (laughs) But I'm happy somebody's playing that role and I hope a lot more come up because I feel like that's important. And he really was a sort of a gateway to right-wing views. That's true. And he hooked people in by saying genuinely interesting things on psychology and, and reasons for living and like philosophy you know what I mean I do um so I think like if you go back to silent generation then you're in the retrograde like this is your responsibility yes. this is your role this is what you're gonna do very doctrinaire very doctrinaire and also very oppressive mm-hmm. for many 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 people hierarchical everybody has a role don't yeah. question it for yeah get in I the mean, kitchen if you're a woman shut up and be a second-class citizen if you're a minority right but it was you all know, about white men rule like, everything <laughs> your responsibility to your role yeah. and staying in your yep. lane and this is what it is if you think about the boomers and gen x there was an illusion of like, first of all, there were liberation struggles and are starting to be, you know, more freedom for people to make their own lives. But there was kind of a capitalist illusion put in place of if you have this set of household goods and you have this set of consumerist items and this ability to have an affluent life, then that's going to be meaning enough. And, you know, or so consumerism creeps in in these areas. Consumerism you're mm-hmm. and also like the idea that just climbing the corporate ladder and pursuing your ambition, that that's going to lead to a satisfying and meaningful life. As Chomsky says, private vices e- yield public virtues. That's the model. Yeah. So you take care of your own thing, stay in your lane, you know, make, climb up that corporate ladder. Yeah. And, and that's got, the meaning. That's it right there. And you've got the advent of advertising, yeah. promise mm-hmm. you happiness with if you get this thing, if you get that, if you get this car, mm-hmm. if your house looks like this, if you get these consumer goods, those are going to be the things that are fulfilling. And so that's kind of like the gospel of, of that generation. And then you get to millennials. Well, hold on. Gen X is fake rebels. Gen X is where they yeah. think they're rebels, but then ultimately they're the biggest. I mean, Gen X is like Pete Buttigieg and Beto. Right. They're, yeah. They're just like we boomers, pretended to be rebels, like, and we're now gonna we're be, gonna be just like the boomers. We're gonna be yeah. boomers, but we're gonna be like, but we're young. Yeah, exactly. So it's better, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, there, it's a fairly meaningless generation. Sure. But we're and, gonna do it with a skateboard. And there's only like 15 <laughs> of them. There's not that many Gen Xers out there. Um, and I say like I barely escaped being in that generation. Yeah, I'm like barely. the oldest millennial you yeah, could mm-hmm. be, but I'm clinging to it. Yeah. Millennials. Gen Z, it's like that has all been exposed as utterly vapid and hollow, and yet nothing's really replaced it. And so I do think that there is 
we talk, obviously, you and I, a lot about economic trends. And that's a part of the story. Mm -hmm. That's a big part of the story of, like, the level of precarity that these generations have, the fact that they're not uh, able to, like, actualize the American dream in the way that it's been sold to them. All of those things are a really important part of the story. But I think it, it all of that is a piece of the puzzle of there are so few pathways to having actual, like, fulfilling meaning in your lives that it contributes to this sense of like constant shuffle, constant searching, constantly looking around, gravitating towards like Jordan Peterson like figures. A lot of depression, a lot of anxiety. A lot of depression, a lot of anxiety, all of that. And a lot of like a lot of addictions too to things that aren't like a passion but are something that just sort of like takes the edge off that the hollowness that exists there. So on, on the one hand, I would argue that millennials are a victim of the horrendous world that the Gen Xers and the boomers Absolutely. and the silent generation have, have given us. So on the one hand, we're victims. But on the other hand, now listen, I get anytime there's somebody in an older generation who critiques the, critiques the millennials, I get really defensive. And I'm like, you can shut the fuck up. You guys <laughs> fucked everything, right? But millennial among a millennial conversation is a little different. And if I'm keeping it real with the millennial generation, yes, we're victims of a shitty system that was handed to us and then we get blamed for that system. But we're also deeply, deeply nihilistic. And think, in fact, I would say that's like the defining characteristic of our generation mm. is like sheer nihilism because mm -hmm. we see the fact that we inherited this horrendous system everybody sort of sees it for what it is and so whenever anybody comes along who's like i think things can be a little bit better we're like oh my god this is amazing i love that person that's bernie sanders yeah. right when bernie mm -hmm. sanders came along and he said that we're like oh my god things don't have to be objectively shitty what right how's that a thing we can hope for something slightly better yes mind-blowing and then you know then you have the gen z folks come along and I think what they're doing is sort of like replacing the millennial nihilism with almost like a secular gospel in a way, because you get, you know, you get a lot of they're I feel like they're more obsessed with identity than even millennials are. And there's a lot of millennials who are obsessed with identity. So the Gen Zers come along and it's all about, you know, your gender orientation, your race, what group you're part of. And it's very sectarian in nature. Mm. And so. I don't think any of this stuff is good. I don't think the nihilism is good. I don't think the the consumerism of the Gen Xers and, and the, the hardcore rules of the silent generation, I don't think any of that is good. And I think that since there's not sort of a macro overarching commitment to something better, people are forced to go on the micro level to search for meaning. And the unfortunate downside is, I just don't think many people find that micro level meaning. It's not to say it's impossible. It's not to say that that's not the answer, but if you don't find it, then it's just like everybody's sort of depressed and anxious and we're barely holding everything together with glue and duct tape. And I feel like that's where we are right now. That's, I think, a very profound point that in the absence, I am very profound, yes. in the absence of the ability to find macro meaning, there's a, a deepening attempt to find like micro meaning. And most people don't find it. And that's, yeah. there's a limited possibility of being able to actually accomplish that. And that also translates into these, you know, weird like virtue signaling battles about like my personal meaning is better than what you're doing out there in the world. And and feeds all of that. And you can also see how it leads to the um, the gateway to these more right-wing reactionary, like, nostalgic forces of, like, 
this isn't going well. Let's just roll the clock back. Let's bring the oppression back to where everybody knew their place. You know, let's bring let's bring all that back. Of course, forgetting about the the parts of that that weren't good for anybody. Um, but you can see how that starts to to hold appeal when you're in this intermediate space where there's a collapse and, and a crisis, but no clear like no clear answer to it that um, is forward looking. Yes. So in my opinion, part of the answer is to have that macro level meaning. But, you know, that's one of the biggest flaws of all the generations that are still around is that nobody has sufficiently made the case that, like, America really has the potential to be great and we should, like, actively try to make it so in a very concrete way. So one of the things I tell you about all the time is that if I ever ran for president, one of the first things I would run on is making it so that the United States of America has the number one infrastructure in the world. I don't just wanna make it okay, I don't just wanna upgrade it, I don't just wanna spend the bare minimum 4.7 trillion or whatever it was just to update it and do all the repairs. I want to spend like 10 trillion on this shit and I want to have it so every other country in the world looks at our airports and goes, holy fuck, this is modern. This is so modern. This is so beautiful. This is so nice. New roads, new, you know, whatever, high-speed rails, fill in the blank. I want the number one infrastructure in the world and I want to make it so everybody else around the world is fucking jealous and Americans are like, look at what we just fucking built. And so it's a, it's a, it's a source of pride. Mm -hmm. And so people, when they think of America, they think, oh, you mean that place that has the number one infrastructure in the world? You mean the place that has number one healthcare system in the world? You mean the place that has gives the most paid vacation time around the world? So in other words, the macro level meaning, I, in my estimation, and maybe I'm biased because I'm a political person, but it should be political and it should be a unifying thing that brings everybody together. And then apart from that, I am a fan of like the micro level meaning, even though it's hard for people to find. I think we should basically try to incentivize people to find it. And one of the ways to do that would be free college, for example. You're much more yeah. likely to, to find your meaning if you have a place to go and a place to explore ideas and, you know, you're sort of given training to get out there in the real world. So like we need that macro level meaning, which is this American project, which, you know, it's hard to make that argument, especially if you're on the left, because a lot of people on the left, keep it real, don't believe in a nation state. They don't believe in the idea of borders. They don't believe, you know what I mean? So yeah. it's hard to, to make that argument. Um, but you need the macro level meaning and then you need the micro level meaning, which is just the personal subjective thing that feels objective about what fulfills you. And I think that's the long run answer, but obviously it's hard because nobody has made us believe in those things at all. Well, and the challenge for um, Pete's argument is what you're speaking to is a policy climate and structure that would help enable people to be able to create that content yes. and meaning mm -hmm. in their lives, which we don't have. Yes, exactly. And so it, it, that doesn't mean you like give up and throw, oh, it's hopeless, the system sucks, so I'm not going to be able to thrive, I'm not going to be able to succeed. But it does mean that overall, as as a nation, you're going to be fighting an uphill battle Harder. against, mm -hmm. you know, a capitalist system that has just completely, you know, in, incentivizes the stripping of meaning from people and places and communities in favor of infinite browsing and always wanting whatever the next thing is and that false promise of the next consumer good, the next paid experience is going to be the thing that provides that meaning ultimately in your life. So I think that's the challenge of marrying like the, the individual philosophy with the policy macro level, micro macro level, level yeah. 
that ultimately enables that um, that to come to pass. To give him credit, though, I think he comes close with the thing he's personally working on to getting it. I agree. I think the other part of the let's have the number one infrastructure, A++ infrastructure in the world, let's do a new New Deal. I think the other part to that is let's have a direct democracy law. Really lean into democracy. To, like actually yeah. believe in our people. But I always said this. If you, if every time you went and voted in a presidential election, you got to vote on the three or the five biggest, most important political issues that are pressing, people would feel like they're part of the nation in a meaningful way. Yeah. And not just like it's this arbitrary place that I happen to live because I was born into it, but I really have no power. They'd feel like, fuck, I get to go vote on whether or not weed's going to be legal. And if we get the majority, we win. You know? I also, I liked his, or whatever. I liked his permission structure around, like, it's okay to be a patriot in the sense of loving a people in a place. And that doesn't mean that you don't like other people in places. And it doesn't mean that you, like, gloss over and pretend like the sins of America don't right, exist. Yeah, mm-hmm. That And I know um, he talks in the book about the community he grew up in, Falls Church, Virginia. As you know, I'm very, you know, rooted in, committed to where, where I grew up and where I live Tucson, now. Tucson, Arizona, right. <laughs> King George County, Virginia. Um, and so I, I sort of liked that framing around patriotism as well, because I think that's something that, the left struggles with at times. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, it's hard to make the argument that we should make something great if the immediate response is like, well, why can't we do that for everybody? And it's just a matter of practicality. Like, I think that's why he focuses, he said he focuses on the states for democracy stuff. Yeah. And I think his argument would just be, it's easier to organize at that level first. You, you know, it's hard to, the, you, yeah. can't, you can't just skip local, state, federal, and go right to global when it's like, right. like you got to aim low, you know what I mean? Right. You got to start somewhere that's reasonable. And so, you know, that's why the whole idea of trying to make our infrastructure the number one infrastructure in the world is appealing to me because, I mean, if you have a compelling enough speaker and you have a political movement that's strong enough, enough and deep enough, we could actually get that done or we could get people in positions of power who believe in that vision or people who believe in a d- direct democracy law at the national level. And so, yes, I think... We don't have that macro level meaning in place, which makes it harder for people to find that micro level meaning. And so then, yeah, we're still feeling the effects of of deep nihilism. And listen, it's fucking merited. You know, it's merited. People have a hard time envisioning these things breaking through. And um, I I mean, I have nothing but sympathy in many respects. I consider myself lucky that I found micro level meaning. Well, you know what Obama would say? Don't boo vote because that's solved all the problems. The next, the next <laughs> corporate hack who's in power will solve They're the problem. The Don't worry, yeah. Don't worry, guys. Um, fascinating guy. Uh, the, again, the book is called Dedicated, and I highly recommend you pick it up and check it out. And I, I really got a lot from it. And everybody, subscribe to Crystal Kyle and Friends on Substack. $5 per month. It gets you every single video of the show on Friday, right when it drops. That's a day early before everybody gets the audio. And... So if you want to support the show, check it out. And subscribe to Breaking Points. That's right. Crystalandsager.com. Yes. Go there. Subscribe. Sub- subscribe to Breaking Points. Crystal and Sager. You know, they're they're leaving the they were under the wing of the hill and now they're leaving the hill. And everybody said, listen, do you want to be part of corporate media or do you want to be part of new media? Do you want to be independent or do you want to not be independent? And they answered the question resoundingly. We would much rather be independent. And listen, it's a risk. They were getting steady paychecks before. Now they're not. So Help them out. I mean, they're they're new to this thing, and they don't want to feel like leaving a corporate organization was a bad thing. So definitely <laughs> um, believe in you guys. Go subscribe to them, and also, if you get us uh, more subs on Crystal Kyle and Friends, if you get us past Barry Weiss, 
then you get a video behind the scenes of... And it's going to be an amazing video. Yeah, of everything that goes on behind the scenes here. Um, you know, you'll see what Crystal and I do before the show. You'll see the studio and all that stuff. So it's a nice little extra perk for people who subscribe on Substack and get us ahead of Barry Weiss, who in no fair universe should be ahead of us. Indeed. It, it gives lie to the whole idea of a meritocracy, that, that fact right there. The fact that she's Just even on the list the of... the whole lie. The fact she's even on the list of, like, the top <laughs> political things on Substack is disgusting. All right. And with that, thanks for watching, guys. We'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>